You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On this episode of HEDEX, Martin heads back to his hometown, and we interview someone from a university that I had never heard of. So, Martin, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thanks, Carl. And I um, can't believe you've never heard of Essex or of the town of Colchester. It was Britain's oldest recorded town, the Roman capital. I thought you'd know that. No, look, I had. I had heard of it, but I certainly know nothing about it. So I'm very interested to get into our, into our guest. But you were actually back in the UK recently, and I think that's maybe where we should start. Yeah, well, the, the, you, you don't have to travel too far, which we many of us can now do, to um, see that the world has gone down some quite different paths over the last couple of years, and different parts of the world are in very different places, which is why I think it's really exciting for me to be able to go home and bring some news, news from my hometown, and for us in Australia to look around the world at how different parts of the world are going through things in different ways. We, we, we should do that as commentators on and leaders in the sector because we can be sure that prospective students and staff will be looking around the world at these points in time. Mm. Yeah, for, certainly um, I think that's, that's the case not just in this sector. The conversation around tra- the traps about the great resignation, is it real, is it not real, um, has people looking not just locally, of course, but internationally, is it time for somewhat of a change? Well, I think people are at a time of being tired with what they have been through and tired with what working practices have been. I, I don't think many are expecting to go back to what before March 2020 were, was like, but new patterns of work, new places to work, new values that they might sign up for, expecting new forms of leadership, new new innovation and business models. and. A very new real world is what I think most people are expecting. And with a with a country now looking at having some fast economic growth and we hope some growth in our higher education sector, the, the challenge of pending skill shortage for an economy that's always been based upon high levels of migration, that's been the case in our higher education sector to a great degree. So are we going to have the future workforce that wants to sign up to the sort of workplaces we're presenting at the moment? Big question. There's not any organisation that we're working with at the moment that isn't spending an unprecedented amount of time and investment in ensuring that their values and their culture are represented in a way that brings talent into and retains talent into their organisation. So my, my feeling on that is that universities won't be any different. The sorts of things that our culture arm in the Brown Institute have been doing for a long time that have not necessarily fallen on dead ears, but we've had a lot of trouble sort of gaining momentum. It's been sort of in foster care with HR. You know, the C-suite now is totally engaged because they know that they're not going to get, be able to get the talent to drive productivity and progress and performance uh, unless they actually invest in it. So what matters to people now? It's it's insights into action. It's what is what, what are the things that are going to be so attractive to talent that they do start running towards particular brands? What's their employment brand look like? How do they represent that? And then importantly, how do they deliver on that expectation and hopefully exceed that expectation so that when people roll up, they don't just stay, but they start talking about it and start influencing other talent to come and join? Well, we've talked about this many times and our, podca- our next podcast um, after this one will be with a, a 
current student at the university again and we'll talk there about how student expectations need to be matched by student experiences it's the, the same to an even greater extent probably with staff um, they need to have realistic expectations set and those expectations are probably different from what they've had in the past and if the experiences they have don't ma match up with that then maybe the great resignation or the great readjustment is something that all of our universities need to be very mindful of why don't we jump into our guest today Today's guest on HEDEX is Professor Anthony Forster, and Anthony has been the Vice Chancellor of Essex University in the UK since 2012, and is a political scientist. He's previously worked at the universities of Nottingham, King's College, Bristol and Durham, and is now also a board member of the Joint Information Systems Committee, known as JISC. So, Anthony, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be here. And Anthony, you lead a university I think widely acknowledges as probably having broken into the top 30 universities in the UK, um, maybe recently, maybe it's been on that journey for some little while, and it was awarded the title of the University of the Year in the UK in 2018. I'm sure you were delighted with that when the news came out, but um, beyond your delight, can you tell us a little bit about the Essex story and what you think as its leader it is that makes it a special place? Well, thank you. I, I think Essex really is very special and very distinctive. We recruit our students on the basis of potential as well as prior achievement. Uh, and more than a third uh, of our students are from families with an annual income of, of less than £25,000. And we in particular have a very substantial number of, of students who are the first in their family to go to university. And for those students, we, we want to offer them a, a research rich environment in which they're getting their education. We're a campus based residential university, but importantly, we believe in living and learning. The extracurricular activities that we offer across our three campuses, uh, whether it be sports, music, volunteering, the arts, uh, are all as important as what goes on in the classroom. We've got a very strong people focus at, at Essex uh, in a variety of different ways. Uh, this was picked out in the Times Higher University of the Year Award in relation to equal pay for work of equal value. We have no significant pay gaps across all grades. We treat our PhD students who teach as staff uh, when they do so. We've undertaken extensive work on decasualization uh, of our workforce. And we're a university that really tries to put people first, both staff and students. Uh, and we hope we've, we've got every right to claim that we're a home uh, for staff and students who want to, to make the world a better place. And I think finally, and maybe we'll come on to this, uh, at Essex, we're a very international university. And we, we say and mean uh, that you can absolutely find the world in one place at Essex, we're a university that is globally connected. We think in combination, the sort of thing that we do and the values that we have make Essex a very special type of university. Some very impressive um, achievements there, particularly with your people and on the, um, on the equity front that I think will resonate with an audience in Australia. Um, and what resonated with me in, in researching your university, you've got this lovely portrayal of, of, of the university as a home to the the curious, the brave and the bold. There was a combination I haven't seen before. I, I wonder where that, it, you might tell us whether you think it's an aspiration or a self-proclamation and where does it come from? And, and what does your university do beyond those things you've already described to live up to that 
that expectation with its staff, its students, and its various stakeholders? So we, we say at Essex, we're, we're a university full of staff and students who are rebels with a cause. Uh, and our, our values come from our founding vision to, to be daring, more experimental, to innovate, to, to be a university for the real world. And our subjects are quite distinctive combinations, whether they're languages and linguistics, uh, philosophy and art history. We, we want to apply our knowledge for the benefit of individuals and communities. Uh, we're not an ivory tower university. And we were founded in 1964 explicitly as a progressive university where we're prepared to stand out from the crowd to, to challenge convention, which we, we feel is in our, our DNA. And examples of that are our world leading work in, for example, human rights, uh, to our use of advanced statistical methods to, to address political, social and economic challenges. And as I've mentioned, we're very international in nature. We're ranked in the, in the top 30 in the world for the proportion of, of staff and students from outside of the UK. And, and we're a university that also is really committed to, to equally delivering excellence in education and excellence in, in research. And we, we think in, in combination um, that that does help us stand out from the crowd and, and, and does help us live up to us being the home to the, the curious, the brave and the bold. That's a lovely, lovely phrase. And um, that, that, that aspect that you've just developed there in your answer about that sense of Essex seeking to emphasise that it's pursuing a dual excellence approach towards both research and student learning. I wonder what you can, um, the essence that you might describe of how you ensure that you move those forward in tandem and maintain equal weight of emphasis to them across all of the different groups at your university? In truth, I think it's really, really hard. Um, there, are, there are many universities that, that in essence focus on research excellence and, uh, and, and not on education. And there are, there are a number of universities that predominantly focus on education, but, but not on, on research. At, at Essex, we don't want to choose between excellence in education and excellence in in research, our, our teaching benefits by being delivered by really great researchers. We, we want our students to be researchers themselves. In, in our case, through every one of our undergraduates completing a capstone research project. But our researchers benefit by, by being challenged by our students, by having uh, their ideas contested uh, and in debates about, about knowledge. And as a university, we think our students should be taught by our our leading academic researchers. Uh, and that's how we approach our staffing strategy. We want to, to appoint as many staff as possible with an education and a research component to their contracts and to make sure that everybody um, has an opportunity to, to teach our undergraduate and our, our postgraduate students. And we think that that's a, a matter of conviction. Uh, it's, we think the best sort of education that we can offer but, but also a matter of calculation. We, we think if we're encouraging students to, to come to Essex, they absolutely deserve to be taught by our, our leading researchers in the university. Very good. And so I'm getting a sense there of um, the way that Essex as a university is pursuing its own mission and trying to be distinctive in the UK landscape. And that, that, that's a subject that's been the subject that's been developing as quite a debate here in, in Australia, where our 40 or so universities 
are seeing an increasing desirability, if not indeed a need to, to seek differentiation and distinctiveness. And we're seeing that play out um, in our geography between the civic universities in the congested competitive geographic areas and the comparison between those that serve more community regional missions in parts of our country. I wonder if the same differences and drivers are evident in the UK and if so, what level of distinctiveness is Essex seeking beyond that that you've described so far? And how's it going, going about achieving that? For me, I think the, the UK system is, is very homogenous, certainly more homogenous than, for example, the, uh, the Australian um, system. And it's been homogenous since the ending of the, the polytechnic system in, uh, in 1992. And I think it's, it's becoming increasingly homogenous with a very similar view as to, to what excellence looks like for most UK universities. Uh, in the UK, we don't really have distinctiveness by geography. Um, all universities want strong links with their regions and their cities. Uh, all universities want an international profile and all universities to some degree or other want to engage in, uh, in research. So I, I think those drivers do create a sort of homogeneity in, in, the, in the UK. In the next two months, we're, we're expecting a major policy announcement from the UK government specifically in relation to English universities. So we'll see if um, there are any changes, but, but in the UK, we, we have a single funding model um, for all English universities, a common admission system, and a preference for many of our UK students to go to university away from where their home is. Um, and it, I think in combination with a common model of what excellence looks like, um, there are and will remain very strong uh, homogenous forces in play in, in English higher education. And of course, in that context, you, you can see how challenging it is um, for any university to, to stand out from the crowd. But, but at Essex, we think we do that um, by being equally committed to education and research, by, by offering a predominantly campus-based residential experience in which we are championing uh, living and learning, as I say, in which the, the extracurricular activities uh, are just as important as what goes on in the classroom or, or the laboratory. And then finally, we want to compete on the basis of, of our values. We, we have a very distinctive value set uh, that we believe is different from others in combination. Uh, and we want to champion that and to recruit staff and students who share those values to, to spend their time and their talents with us. Fascinating. You, you've, you've talked at several times in our interview already about the international commitment um, and nature of your university and you've touched there in that commitment to the dual excellence in research and teaching and the some of the uncertainty that that I perceive might exist in in your funding system for the next stage of, of research funding that's been a big issue for Australian universities we've been very reliant on on international student fee income to underpin our research endeavors um, and the loss of that is still leaving us searching for ways of finding a, a sustainable basis of maintaining research investment. Is, is, is research funding in yours and other UK universities facing a similar level of uncertainty with the, 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 the issues that we've shared? The answer to that, in my view, is, is, is no. In, in the UK, research funding uh, is, uh, the government has said research funding is going to increase to um, 2.4% of 
of GDP with a commitment to 20 billion being spent on research by 2024 and 2022 billion by 2026. And the government has also pledged 800 million uh, over the course of um, this parliament uh, to, the, to create an advanced research and, and innovation agency, ARIA. So I think our challenge in the UK is, is not one that, um, that there's a reduction in research funding. Uh, our challenge is that it, the research funding is, is more directly linked now to government priorities than it is to blue skies funding. Uh, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to secure unhypothecated research funding. Uh, that is to say research funding to support infrastructure as well as, as blue skies research that, that doesn't map on to some of the strategic priorities uh, of the, the UK government. I think in, in our context, and particularly in England, uh, we, we really have a, a particular challenge around uh, undergraduate, UK undergraduate fees. Uh, and that's where we're expecting big announcements uh, over the next couple of months that, that has the potential to, to really challenge the sustainability of, of the English higher education system. Let's see what the government proposes. Yes, I'm sure there's a number of systems around the world that are going to have that challenge for their domestic funding as a looming priority as we go through the issues that the last two years have created and the next few years will, um, will undoubtedly bring, which is, is making the competition for international students and fee income from that source particularly um, particularly strong. I'm sure this is an area where our Australian listeners are likely to feel a little bit envious of where you are at the moment, because here you are, you're in your new academic year, it's underway. I, I assume you've got students fully back on that living and learning experience. I, I assume your international students have returned for the coming year. Uh, can, can you describe what you see on your campus today and what the level of return of international students has been? Well, the first thing to say is after 18 months, it's just an absolute and complete joy to, to see students back on our three campuses. Um, uh, as I say, not just experiencing face-to-face -face teaching, but all the extracurricular activities that, uh, that we offer on our, our three campuses. And it, it's highlighted to me that um, our campuses um, were a place but not a home. Uh, and what makes them a home is, is actually having our, our staff and students uh, on the three campuses and bringing them to life in the, the way that they need and deserve. Our international student recruitment has actually been really very positive indeed. Uh, and uh, we're pleased about that after 18 months of, of extraordinary um, disruption. Uh, we've encouraged our international students to come to our campuses uh, in person if possible, um, but online if absolutely necessary. And we still know in a number of uh, countries around the world, there are travel restrictions that, that, that make coming to the UK uh, rather difficult. Uh, so we're running online um, options uh, for those students who, who are unable to, uh, to travel to uh, one of our three campuses. Um, the, the picture has been mixed. Uh, I think recruitment uh, from China still remains a, a, a challenge, but in other parts of the world, um, uh, student recruitment has been absolutely uh, excellent, particularly from uh, India and the Indian subcontinent. So uh, very pleased to see that um, uh, we're going, getting back to the sort of levels of international student recruitment that, that we've had um, prior to uh, the pandemic uh, striking in, in March of, uh, of 2020. I think the, the particular UK context um, is also worth highlighting in relation to uh, European Union students. From 
October of this year, um, EU students have not been able to uh, uh, have the, the UK fee uh, of £9,250 or access to uh, the loan arrangements that are available to UK students. Uh, and that uh, has meant that uh, we've seen a 70% reduction uh, across the UK uh, of, um, of students from the European Union coming to UK universities. And that's been uh, a pretty similar picture at the University of Essex as well. Uh, and that's been painful in so many, many different ways, uh, given the, the way in which um, our European Union students enrich the lives of, um, of, of the campuses and the experience that we can offer. So a mixed picture, um, but with the reduction in um, uh, travel restrictions, uh, the number of, of countries that um, were placed on so-called red lists uh, where travel was severely limited uh, have all started to, to shift in a really positive way and, and long may that continue. So how do you and your fellow vice chancellors in UK universities, sort of, what, what are you feeling on the sort of, um, on the global scale then, Anthony, at the moment? Do you feel that, UK universities are well placed for the new competitive environment that you see opening up over the next, I don't know, two to five years for international student recruitment? Will, will the UK do well out of this, maybe at the expense of places like Australia? Well, I think the UK has, um, has got a really strong brand. I mean, UK universities offer a really great uh, educational experience at, at undergraduate, um, masters, and, and PhD levels. I mean, historically, the UK has um, some fabulous links um, to countries across the world, and a and a really strong record in recruiting international students. So there's a very strong base um, to to build on. Uh, I think recently we've we've had changes in um, the uh, restrictions. Uh, that relate to students who graduate, international students who graduate in UK universities so that they're now uh, allowed to, um, to stay on after graduation uh, for up to two years, um, post-study work visa changes that have been really important uh, in signalling to international students if they come to the UK, uh, they uh, study here, uh, there's an opportunity also um, to stay on and to work. And, and for us, that's been an absolute game changer, actually, in making the UK a very competitive and an exciting destination for, for international students. I think we, we're really embracing a whole range of, um, of different types of uh, degree, um, more joint degrees with international universities, more hybrid degrees with international um, universities. And, and that too is, is an exciting new development, really, that that is opening up new markets and, and developing types of cooperation that, um, uh, that perhaps we didn't see in quite that sort of way prior to the, the pandemic uh, striking us in, uh, in the early part of, of 2020. And then finally, I think in the UK, we've got a specific challenge around um, the European Union. Uh, the UK's departure from, from the European Union uh, has really been very significant in, indeed. And, and all UK universities are, are really trying to, to rethink through the, the relationships that we have with uh, European Union universities and, and the way in which we recruit uh, European Union students at Essex. Uh, we were one of only three UK universities to, to be part of the European Commission's um, European University Initiative. Uh, we're a member of the, the Young Universities for the Future of Europe Alliance. And there were a group of 10 universities that are really thinking through 
um, deeper levels of cooperation, particularly around staff and student mobility uh, and, and joint degree programs and the sharing of, of staff, both academic and professional services staff in ways that we've never done before. And notwithstanding our departure from the European Union, that's going to be an absolute game changer for us in, in building new relationships uh, now that the, the United Kingdom has left the European Union. We're hearing a lot about um, strategy and values and international and research. We've had fewer mentions so far in this interview, other than what, what you had to turn to for your international students, of the move towards online education. And I'm, I can only imagine that you must have embraced, embraced that in a, in a big way from March 2020 for a significant amount of time. Has that left enduring changes in your models of education at Essex? And if so, have you started to see, or will you now be able to move away from any changes in business model and strategy caused by the embracing of technology for the, for the, for the period ahead? So at the University of Essex, we've had a University of Essex um, online degree platform running uh, with uh, our partner Kaplan for, for over a decade now, highly successful uh, and uh, fully online. And we have about 3000 students that, that are registered for a variety of, um, of different courses. And, and we're seeing that scale up actually um, in the last 18 months in, in very exciting ways. And, and we're driving a whole range of new product innovations, new degrees that we're offering uh, through the Holy Online platform. But it would be also, I think, important to, to state that on our three campuses, we've tried to really think about the pandemic uh, in, in terms of what are the positive developments that we would like to continue to, uh, to put into effect to embrace. Uh, so a couple of examples would be flexibility in start dates prior to the pandemic. We predominantly recruited our students in October uh, of each academic year, and that was it. Uh, we've now got flexible start dates and flexible entry points uh, in a way that uh, has opened up some really exciting prospects for us in a, in a variety of different degree programs and indeed uh, different markets across the world. We, we're giving a lot of serious thought to integrating the very best of technology uh, into our face-to-face -face, uh, in-person degree courses. Uh, and the pandemic has forced us to, uh, to have in effect a step change really in the way in which we've been using technology. And we want to make sure we don't lose some of the very best um, positive outcomes that, that technology ha has offered us uh, in thinking about course and curriculum design. And then I think the last two points I'd pull out are, firstly, we're really giving some serious thought to personalized learning. Uh, what does that look like uh, in a post-COVID uh, 21st century? Uh, and that's very challenging for us, but, but something that we want to try and embrace and really think through um, the whole personalized learning um, uh, uh, initiative and, and, and what that can offer us in terms of the way in which we, uh, we offer courses and indeed deliver and assess them. Uh, and then just really pushing very hard on product development. We've seen a, an absolute explosion of, um, of innovation over the, the last two years, really. Uh, and we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of, of that um, exciting innovation and the pace at which we've been moving, um, which is, I think, probably quite striking from, uh, from the sort of uh, level of initiatives and the pace with, with which we were moving uh, prior to, to March 2020. That sounds very positive, Anthony. And, and I, it's as I sus expected in in interviewing you at this point in time that your 
You're a university operating in an environment that I see it that's further down the track of living with COVID, as we now talk about it, than most um, Australian universities. And beyond those um, aspects of learning and product development that you've described, are there other ways that um, recovering from the, the pandemic has made enduring changes in the way that your university operates and will operate in the future, and indeed the way it's seeing opportunities in the future? Yes, I, I think the, the pandemic has highlighted how important authentic values-based inclusive leadership is. I think we've, we've needed different styles of leadership over the last 18 months or so, and I, I, I don't think we're going to revert back to, um, uh, to leadership styles um, that were that predominated prior to um, the spring of, uh, of 2020. I think we, we are ourselves trying to challenge ourselves on the issue of what it means to be a really good employer. Um, and well-being has come to the fore quite rightly in a variety of different ways, whether it's mental health challenges or perhaps work-life balance. And we've really wanted to, to make sure we don't lose that, that really people focus um, that, um, that came to the fore throughout the, the pandemic. And, and I, I think a, a sort of capstone comment would be that I, I, I think more and more it's not just um, what universities do, but how they do it that is going to be very attractive to, to staff and students. And we, we want to hold on to that thought to make sure that, that, um, you know, that we are a, a university of choice, not just for our students, but, but also for our staff. I'm really taken by that commitment to the needs of people and the, the needs for different styles of leadership. The, the interviews that we've, re, we've conducted with a large number of vice chancellors in Australian universities has really pointed to that. And, some have embraced it and many are aware of it, but to hear you articulate it so strongly is, is really quite impressive. So, Anthony, I've, I've asked this question of every Australian Vice-Chancellor I've spoken to in the last 12 months. Um, you're the first Vice-Chancellor from the UK that I've had the, the pleasure of interview. And are you enjoying being a Vice-Chancellor at an English university as we come maybe to the light at the end of the tunnel of what must be the most tra traumatic and disrupted period of any university um, period of strategy and operations. Are, are you having fun? I am. Uh, I, the, the last 18 months have been really, really tough for, for, for everybody. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but particularly for, for everybody in, in leadership roles where, where we're responsible not just for, um, for ourselves, um, but actually for our community at large. And I don't think there's, there's any getting away from that. Indeed, we should give voice to the, you know, the fact that it's been really tough uh, over the last 18 months. But it's also true for me that, that being a Vice-Chancellor at a, an English university is absolutely the best job in the world. And it, it allows me to, to lead in creating circumstances that allow colleagues to be their very best. And, and uh, that's noble work. I can't think of, of any other job that, that would give quite this level of challenge, but, but also quite this level of reward as well. Well, certainly you, you, you look like you're enjoying it. You look like you're making some, some great progress. And for being our first international vice chancellor on the HeadX podcast series and sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with us so openly today, Anthony Forster, thanks very much for joining us on HeadX. Thank you. Well, what a contrast. I think uh, Anthony made it very clear there that the situation that they've got in the UK, anything from government positioning and, uh, and investment through to their international borders and what that means for international students, very different situation to what we find here in Australia. 
Isn't it fascinating that, um, that we can be at a similar point in time, but just seeming to be experiencing very different things? I mean, he used the expression there of Essex as a university for the real world, which mm -hmm. has a certain irony for me, as I know that, that town so well. But I also know that brand so well from QUT as a university in Australia. But the real world he's talking about is a completely different real world from the real world that QUT was experiencing before the pandemic. Mm. And he did talk about challenges. You know, in each of those real world scenarios, we've all got challenges. I, I couldn't help. I think you might have mentioned in the interview that you'd think that Australians or leaders in Australian universities could be um, a little bit jealous of the situation that they're in over there because their challenges seem to be sort of forward-facing challenges, you know, not as critical, not as burning platform-style challenges as we've got. Well, it, it, it feels... Uh, we've all been speculating, haven't we, that the, the, the poor old poms with Brexit coming up and mm. the early suffering and, look, there's been a huge number of deaths there, but mm. the picture I got there, the, the numbers he was talking about of research investment in terms of billions of pounds, in his case, and percentages of GDP, which are an international comparator, is a lot of Australian vice-chancellors would be en very envious of that and the fact that he's got three campuses from, of his universities with on-campus international st students in quite significant numbers. And he talked about five challenges in particular, and I think one of them, to your point around Brexit, does that is a bit of a challenge. It's a, it's a big one. You know, the UK departure from the EU and then having to forge or re-establish relationships, and what does that look like? You know, that is, there's some work to be done there, but the, the rest of the challenges that he talked about, um, you know, flexible start dates, it's almost carrying over the learnings from the pandemic into the present and the future. So I don't know if they're actually challenges. It's how do we operationalise some of our key learning and things that we know work. You know, he talked about flexibility and start dates. Um, talked about integration of technology, you know, into the face-to-face in-person degree course. Personalised learning, he said, is very challenging, but we all know that's where the world is. You know, technology has sort of led us to a position where you don't have an option anymore. And then finally, he talked about product development, you know, innovation-led products and investing in that. Well, if they're your challenges, you're in a pretty good place. Well, it's fascinating that you would pick up on all those specifics of the the learning environments of universities as a point of difference. I mean, it's almost as if we're swapping roles here, Carl, because I couldn't help but pick up on some of the things he was saying about culture, mm -hmm. about employee value propositions and, and issues of equity in a, um, an, a British university. I mean, the, the idea that at different pay grades there's no measurable gender pay gap in mm -hmm. his university mm -hmm. is... And I know from doing some research on it that they went through a specific exercise of having university-wide quite substantial pay rises for women in, in a variety of pay grades to eliminate a pay gap within certain levels of um, employment. The, the, the focus on treating casual staff with respect and him as a leader recognising that he needs to lead in different ways to reflect the periods of the time. I think there's someone there that's completely got their finger on the pulse of the importance of culture and equity if we're trying to give a, a prominent employee value proposition in these times. Yep, those two points you make there, pay gap, why on earth will we still be talking about that now? It's, it's absolutely absurd. So, I mean, sure, I'm, I'd really hope that that's just a, a level playing field now and we don't, that's not even a topic of conversation moving forward. And the second one is, of course, with different 
new ways of working and different ways of being engaged in terms of employment and now people wanting a greater you know work-life balance than ever before it's in the university's best interest and the students best interest to recognize casual staff i don't think there's any way around that either well it's been a big topic for australian universities in this last month or so and throughout the pandemic because it's been where the the biggest um hit has been in employment numbers and I don't think we've fully resolved how to deal with that from this point forward, both in terms of fairness to the huge number of people in the sector, but also how we're going to operate our teaching and learning programs with the huge reliance we've had on a casual and sessional workforce in the past being mm-hmm. something very difficult to replace it in a fair but effective way into the future. Mm. Hey, here's something. The the conversation about hybrid degrees with other universities and this now not forced um, partnership, but there's a lot warmer. Look, the boundaries are, the boundaries are sort of uh, disappeared to some extent. There's the, the fences between universities and the protective nature seems to have dissipated to some extent. So um, I'm very interested in that. I know you are too, because I don't think it's just a hybrid in terms of university partnership, but we're starting, we've already seen it, um, the technology um, influx. You know how are technology companies starting to work with traditional universities? And I love the idea of greater collaboration, just generally across the sector. Well, that's been a big part of what HEDEX's story has been about, of course, both in terms of facilitating conversations across universities, but bringing um, out of sector companies into into play with with the missions and the futures of universities too. I mean, some sometimes. Um, you, you need a burning platform to create a really strong ambition out of change, don't you? And the, the, the natural way of things in UK universities in a Brexit or a pre-Brexit environment of European Union funding committing to or, or really making it necessary to have European university partners, there's a different playing field now for UK universities that can approach the world in a different way. I I, I think for us coming out of a pandemic with borders opening, I think all of our universities will be looking for international partnerships in a different way. And I think on the both the domestic and the international student scene, looking at providing new products and new courses in partnership with corporate partners in different ways. I think our roles uh, as you know, support acts to the industry are also changing over time. In the past 20 years or so, I would have had, I don't know, a handful of calls from universities to guest speak at certain MBA programs or Masters of Marketing or something like that around bringing the outside in. And now we're running, the phone's running hot. You know, how do we make this more relevant? How, you know, can you come and talk about brand and what brand actually means, not just, you know, visual identity, but how do we build relationships with our key audiences beyond what we do and say on a billboard or on a digital screen? And the idea of brand and culture working together and how that's so important, um, that's a, a particular relationship that I'm... <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, I'm some, somewhat surprised it hasn't happened earlier, but there's a lot of interest in that. You know, how do we stand up? What it is that we're about? What's our relationship? And then deliver on that um, without any of the hocus, you know, the hokey type of um, behavioral coding or, you know, the, the FMCG style of delivery. But how does it become innate? How does it become something that's in our DNA? So when you wander onto our campus or you wander onto our online campus, you can feel us. You can feel it. You can see it. You you like it. It meets your needs. And it's got something of an X factor that surprises you and you probably want to go and talk about it. Well, I mean, Essex University, coming back to, to Anthony's com- comments about that, it's, it's a, a young, um, new university that's been quite 
deliberate in its positioning to be different. It's got this lovely strapline of, of seeking to be curious, brave and bold. And, and he used the expressions of rebels with a cause. Um, mm. I think that, for me, really resonates with what the place is about. And I think any place is about trying to have a clear strategy and a brand that people want to get behind, that people can identify with, that attracts the, the staff and the students who are choosing and are suited to that sort of university and are, are, have a sense of purpose in being there. I think so many people that come into our sector and want to contribute to it do it from a strong sense of purpose mm -hmm. and they therefore want to identify with an institution that clearly projects that shared sense of purpose with them. I think that's going to become much more to the fore in the period ahead. And, you know, 20 years ago, we'd talk about that as the conceptual target. You know, we actually worked with Harley Davidson. And we came up with uh, rebels with cash, essentially. So you weren't, you weren't talking about yourself, but you're talking about your desired audience. And that conceptual target is here's our target audience. What's the concept that surrounds and what's the commonality of that particular audience group? And that, that will become a lot more obvious, I think, now that this has happened. It's been going on in conventional or traditional business for a very long time. Um, and we've done it just to a small extent in higher education, but I'd expect that to become very common vernacular now. I agree. I think the great readjustment, I don't, I'm not sure we're going to see a great resignation, but I think the great readjustment we're going to see in our universities into 2022 is a clearer articulation of strategy and brands mm -hmm. with a clearer value proposition to the rebels that they want to get behind their cause and that the ones that do that most effectively will have the most momentum going into next year. And Martin, I know I'm, I'm about to fiddle with the, the magic of Christmas, but can you tell us a little bit about the uh, who's on our podcast next week? Well, this is our, our penultimate episode of the year. Our last one is um, giving voice to, again, what we often say are the most important people in our sector, students. And so I had the real joy this year of meeting a new student at one of our universities and got, a, got to talk to her twice in the course of the year. I talked. She started in mid-year on a joint course in business and the creative arts. I talked to her at O-Week about what her expectations were, and I talked to her just before her exams in week 12 um, about what her experiences have been. Now, while we've got student surveys being filled in and we're waiting for student experience data across the sector as a whole, some insights into what students thought they were getting and what the year turned out to be is a really sobering and important note to finish the year, I think. Terrific. That's all we have time for this week on Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.